Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join me on a sunny day in an empty capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Rodney Haith, Chief Executive of Air TV International, a provider of free family-friendly television. Rodney, hello. Hello. Thank you very much for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally, we dive straight into the concept of leadership. However, under our current circumstances, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how COVID-19 has affected your operations. Uh, well, we run a rather complicated operation in three countries, uh, UK, uh, Spain, and Portugal. And we're locked down at the moment in Portugal. Uh, we came over here for some uh, medical assistance, and lo and behold, they closed the borders. So for how many more months, we don't know. The, the one good thing, of course, is that Portugal has probably the lowest incidence and death rates in the whole of Europe. They jumped on the problem very quickly here. And the population, in fact, in Portugal is very, um, well, they obey the law and um, they uh, don't uh, congregate. So that's good. Well, it's excellent that you're safe. Uh, how has the operation of the actual business had to uh, change to obey social distancing? Well, we can't. We do an awful lot of film, filming in venues, theatres, uh, clubs. Um, that's obviously now gone. Uh, we do have 10 television channels. Um, and the one television channel that we um, are concentrating at, at the moment is the opinion channel which allows everybody to give opinion up, down, right, left, whatever. Um, and that's not changed in the fact that uh, we have substantially better uh, internet in uh, Portugal uh, and Spain. Uh, we can get online and do, uh, as an example, a, a Zoom um, or Skype uh, conference call uh, and it's not like you see often on British television when Skype is used, it's uh, it's not very good quality. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we've you know we've got up to a gigabyte asymmetrical broadband, then if you're talking to somebody on the west coast of America, it looks as though practically you're in the same studio. So in that sense, uh, it's not uh, affected us. Now, of course, uh, television is seen a, a major uptick in viewership uh, due to people being uh, stuck at home. Uh, have you found the same with your uh, channels? Yeah, we, we're getting an awful lot more response than, than previously. The, the big uh, gain, of course, in, in this situation is, is people like Sky News. It, it was impossible for news media to make any profit uh, in previous years, especially 24-hour news media. It's very expensive. Um, but now I, I understand they're making vast profits because they're not being affected as most of the companies with the lockdown. They're getting lots and lots of advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and let's be a bit bold on this. And, and some people are actually saying um, wonderful news media coverage, uh, Brexit. They love that. Uh, now they're loving the virus. Um, and uh, some people have actually said, well, Golly, um, would we have a virus pandemic if we want for 24-hour news? Would it not just be an ordinary bad year for the flu? 
Well, it's undeniable that the this is not the flu. This is a separate virus. Um, uh, but you yeah, are, flu inverted course, yeah. You you are right that the uh, that the news media does like to focus on the negative. Um, now we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always uh, like to uh, start this part of the conversation off by asking a very simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Well, it's somebody that you can look up to and um, feel empathy towards as a leader and somebody that you can join uh, for the sake of the company, uh, especially the, the, the top echelon of, of any company depends on a core, I believe, uh, of good people with the same work ethic as the boss man. And they will, uh, you know, not worry about working hours. If, if you have to think about the company out of working hours, they will do so. So it's a good idea to uh, have some good, inverted commas again, disciples that, you know, have the share, shared interest of the company. Now, does that, uh, is that a process that begins at recruitment or can you take anyone in and make them uh, uh, come along the company line? No, I think, you know, uh, young people um, are brilliant and we specialize in helping and, and educating. Um, we run a charity in Spain and, and we focus on this. The young people go through the uh, what is called the FAP in Spain, uh, which is the secondary education, and they get good uh, media training. Uh, I dare say a lot better than the media courses in many of our colleges and universities in UK. People often use that as a, a nice, easy option because they want the 15 minutes of fame and, and, and they come out having 17 hours of lecture a week uh, expecting to uh, proceed in the world of television, radio, the media in general. Uh, it doesn't work that way. They're far better trained on the continent. Uh, and when we get, and one has to say, uh, students from the continent, um, they're much better. Now, uh, one has to say also that there are certain universities uh, and centres in the UK that are very, very good. Um, but majority, no, we would certainly train foreign, Spanish, Portuguese people because they've got... Um, something about them, and they've been they, they, their expectations are not just sitting behind a camera uh, or in front of a camera. Indeed, um, they want to do the grafting, the hard work to learn properly. What can be done to improve uh, the programs offered by British universities? Well, there we are. That's a sixty-four thousand dollar question because it's not just the media courses that are deficient. Uh, it's an industry. The university is an industry, and they're all competing um, for people to come into their uni. And uh, frankly, they're dumbing down instead of dumbing up. Lots involved there, and uh, I don't think the time <laughs> allowed at the moment. Uh, but that's a, a sort of um, global view. Now, uh, of course, uh, when it comes to leadership, uh one of the hardest parts of it is dealing uh, with conflict amongst people. What's your um, technique for re resolving conflict between uh, workers? 
Yeah, it, not in our own organisation. We, we don't have an awful lot of that. You know, we tend to be all rowing in the same direction. But if there's somebody um, coming into a company and um, uh, they have an attitude that is, is not good, uh, it's always, and I, I, personally, I don't allow, uh, I don't want um, the next layer down from um, the boss uh, to handle the situation. I would sooner handle it myself and get down to the real problem and try and help a person. Uh, and I think that gives uh, a little bit more respect that the head of the company takes time. I mean, it can't be done in a massive company, of course, but, you know, when you've got like we have with our various interests, about 100 employees, you can cope with that. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Air TV International? Golly, I mean, uh, wouldn't I uh, win the, um, the lottery? Uh, if I knew that, nobody <laughs> could know that with the state of the uh, present system and the present virus and different companies uh, countries' ways of dealing with it. We get stats from all over. And there again, you have to look through the stats to see uh, the, the true results of the virus in various countries. Uh, I cannot answer that. I would love to. Well, Rodney, it's been an absolutely uh, pleasure uh, having you on the program today. And I'd love to have you back on the show when things get back to some semblance of normalcy. It's a pleasure. No problem. Thank you. That was Rodney Harth, Chief Executive of Air TV International. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Riscothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, he got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to completely different 
world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player. I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So. It was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... Mm. um, source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role you know just in terms of because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the 
the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after. You know that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are 
slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that twenty nineteen World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um and I knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. With, in fact, we didn't have to move at the times. We need to get ahead of the times. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the england captaincy sort of done to prepare me 
for the role. I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help 
the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world 
we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. And I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.